0: Lord, we are grateful for this opportunity to use our brains. Oftentimes, instead of Christians, that they check their brains at the door in order to embrace a God. Lord, I am glad that you have left us a path, a trail, by which we can see your hand in creation. I pray, God, for those here this morning that perhaps may have doubts, may have fears, may not be, may not be certain about why, what they believe. God, I pray that this morning that they would realize that science and faith do not contradict and, Lord, I pray that by your Holy Spirit, as we've already sung, as we've already meditated and thought about, Lord, that you would help us to expand our way of understanding this universe, Lord. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Well, good morning and welcome. If you are visiting with us, we have started off a series a few weeks ago called EBF. And the series was basically called Evidence-Based Faith. Now, I know that seems like a bit of a contradiction, like faith doesn't need evidence, but I would say to you it actually does. As a matter of fact, as I've gone through um, the Bible and kind of studied scripture, some- uh, scripture on this. One of the things that's very interesting about how God interacts with human beings is he asks us to use our brains. And yet it seems like we are always told that Christians don't use their brains. As a matter of fact, I was, on Friday night I was at a gathering of uh, of, of, of academics um, and I. I don't know why I was there, I just maybe the free food or something, but uh, I was there and there's like a physicist, there's an anthropologist, there's like just different uh, uh, and uh, different people from different disciplines and we we're sitting there talking about uh, our culture and community and, and things like that. And what was interesting is one person said um, that, you know, oh, and this individual had a, um, had a, had a, um, a painful past with the church. And so they were were wounded in in their belief. And so uh, she had said that, you know, uh, where she came from, Christians were kind of backwards, kind of, you know, uh, and and she was American. So she said they're all Trump followers and all that. And regardless of of your political leanings, what she was implying is basically Christians were dumb. And I don't know if she knew I was a pastor or not, um, but I... I, did, I, I took a little exception to that, and I, I kind of put my hand up. I said, hey, that's, I, I hear what you're saying, and I, and I think that there is great reason to believe that because the fact is across the spectrum, there's always been people have done dumb things. Right and said dumb things, and we can, we can all acknowledge that. But we can also acknowledge as well, too, that uh, perhaps you might be oversimplifying it. And we had this really interesting conversation, then her and her partner came afterwards and were talking to me, and were interested to know that I was a pastor, and my wife and I were having this conversation. But what's interesting is, is that we have been told time and time again that to be a Christian, you have to kind of check your brains at the door, that science and faith contradict. And I would say to you that actually that may not be true. And so what I want to do this morning, and I'm just going to front and load this, this is not going to be your typical sermon, and by typical sermon, I'm barely going to use any scripture at all. Uh, and the reason for that, and for those of you who know me, you know my passion for God's word and, and, and teaching, and whenever I teach, I use Scripture, lots of scripture, perhaps too much, and that can actually be true. But my defense of that is I'd rather teach you what God says than what I say. But this morning it's a different one. We want to talk about faith and reason. And because of that, I want to kind of show you some things I think that perhaps maybe people don't talk about a lot. And so it's really going to be science stuff. Now, understand something. I'm not a scientist, nor do I play one on TV. My degree is in theology, my minor is in psychology, and I'm just an amateur sociologist. So that's my, uh, th- those are my bents. But what I am is curious. I'm curious. I have always been the person that never really accepted answers until I kind of kicked the tires myself. And because of that curiosity, I've always asked questions. I've always said, okay, I I know this is what we're supposed to do. I know we're just supposed to just believe, but there has to be more than that. And the good news is there is more than that. But we have to kind of dig a little deeper and kind of go from there. But let's review last week what we talked about I said to you last week that there are three worldviews that this culture, our culture, has been built upon. Right? I said to you that there's Greek, Latin, and Hebrew. Right? And I said to you, the, the Greek way of thinking is descriptive and explanatory. Right, We look at Aristotle and we saw how he described the, the world. Right? So Aristotle or Greek way of looking at things is, is, is about description and explaining how things are. Right? The Latin way is about method and process. Right? The Latin way of thinking is very much, let's take this apart and see how it works. Right? It's about the inner workings. Right? Hebrew is different. Hebrew is all about uh, value and place. Like, well, what is it supposed to be? Now, the reason why that's important is, is because when you read the Gospels, for example, you get no description of what Jesus looked like. Not a single one. Right? And, and so what's interesting about that is to the Hebrews, what Jesus looked like was unimportant to them. To the Greeks, like when you read some of the, uh, some of the uh, Greek uh, writings there, you see that they describe, right? So we know what Alexander the Great looked like. We know what different individuals looked like. Why? Because they described them. Right, because that was important to them, but to the Hebrew, that wasn't important at all. And so, sometimes our frustration with the Bible is is we are bringing a Greek or Latin perspective to Scripture, and we're asking it we're asking it questions that it's not going to answer because it doesn't matter. Right, the prophets and 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 all the individuals of the Bible very rarely will they describe them because again, to the Hebrew mindset, it didn't matter. Right, what what were they saying? What was the value of what they were saying? That was what was mo- most important to them. I said to you last week, and we last week we kind of looked at the historicity of the Bible, and I said to you, and I made this claim, and I'm going to say it one more time here: there has never been any historical, anthropological, or archaeological discovery to bring into doubt the narrative in the Old and the New Testaments to date. To date. There has never been a discovery of any sorts that has brought into account question the accounts of the Bible. Now remember something, okay? The Bible is a narrative of a group of people throughout history. These people interact with other people, i.e., the Egyptians, the Babylonians, Mesopotamians, right? The Hittites, these are other people, they interact. The best way to disprove the Bible is to disprove these people existed, disprove these interactions, disprove these battles. But the problem is the Bible consistently lines up historically of what we know of this time, of this place, of this particular time period, right? Next week, we're going to be looking at um, world religions, and we're going to say to, we're to, say to ourselves, why, does, why should we follow Jesus, and why not other followers? And we're going, to take a, we're going to examine other sacred scriptures and apply the scientific method to them and see why the Bible is kind of a unique document in that way. And that's kind of, that will be what's next week. I closed with a quote from Timothy Keller. I love what he says about this. He says, To stay away from Christianity, because part of the Bible's teaching is offensive to you, assumes that if there is a God, he wouldn't have any views that upset you. Does that belief make any sense? Does that make any sense, right? And it doesn't. And I said to you that what we see in our culture today is people kind of hold a mirror up to themselves and saying, Yeah, that's God, because He he thinks like me, he looks like me, he acts the way, and this is what I'm comfortable with, and this is what I'm uncomfortable with, and what we tend to do is we self-edit the Bible based upon our own preferences, and that's dangerous, because what happens then is that you begin to take parts out that are actually kind of important right? And so, yes, there are ways of culturally understanding the Bible. There are ways of traditions. And one of the things that you see, one of the things I teach you is that when we read through the Bible, there's a Hebrew way of understanding the Bible. And sometimes you have to unpack that Hebrew way to really understand what that looks like. N.T. Wright, one of my favorite writers, he does that in such a great way. He really unpacks the Hebrew way of understanding the Bible. As a matter of fact, our Easter series this year is going to be looking at the Messiah, right? This role of the Messiah in the Old Testament and why Jesus was this individual. And the significance of that because for us as gentiles we don't really understand why that was so significant for people back then so that's what we looked at last week now uh, a couple years ago uh, a chicago-based uh engineer decided that he would put together a list of the 40 smartest people of all time and he created an algorithm up and he put this list and he bounced it off some other academics and at the end of it what happened was people going, yeah these people on the list seem like the, the smartest people. Now, some people say, well, I don't know about 37, maybe 26, you know, like, I, you know, but the top 10, top five, everyone's like, yeah, these are the smartest people on that list. So coming at number five is a guy named James Maxwell. James Clerk Maxwell, born 1831 to 1879. We think his IQ is about 190, okay? That's really impressive, just to be clear, right? And so uh, James Maxwell was uh, one of the greatest scientists who ever lived, Uh, We owe one of the most significant discoveries of our age, the theory of uh, electromagnetism. He's kind of considered the father of modern physics. And so he is uh, the the fifth smartest person of all time. Coming in at number four... I don't mean to sound like Dave Letterman, uh, is a guy named Isaac Newton, Sir Isaac Newton. I think many of you know who uh, Sir Isaac Newton is. He uh, was a physicist a mathematician and is credited one of the greatest minds of the 17th century and was one of the people that ushered in the scientific revolution, right? So, um, and we think that his, his uh, uh, IQ is about 195, 200 approximately, right? That's what we think there. Coming at number three, so we're like, come on, come on. No, it's uh, Leonardo da Vinci right? Leonardo da Vinci was, uh, again, the Italian Renaissance. He was one of the uh, foremost thinkers. We, he, was, he was a painter. He was a mathematician. He was an inventor. He was, um, he was a multidisciplinary smart kind of first individual. It, brilliant, brilliant in what he did. Uh, his IQ, we think about 200, 205 uh, in that range. Coming in at number uh, two, Albert Einstein. Now, many people thought that maybe Albert Einstein should be number one, but there is actually someone else, a different number one. Uh, Albert Einstein, of course, uh, theory of relativity and uh, all that like. So, Albert Einstein is pretty much known to our culture, so I don't have to unpack him. Coming at number one, any, any guesses on who number one might be? George W. Bush. That's exactly you are in the wrong church. Um, at, at number one, we have an individual, his, his name is uh, Johann Goethe. I hope I said that correct. I've been practicing that right. Johann Goethe is, uh, his IQ is between 215 and 220. By the way, they say that when you get past the 200s, you're like, you're like the smartest person. Like, this is like the top percentile of anybody that ever existed. Let me tell you about Johann Goethe. He's an iconic figure of the German Romanticism. He was, uh, he was a composer, he was a writer, he wrote Faust. For those of you who have studied literature, uh, he's a theoretical uh, uh, physicist, biologist, polymath, uh, artist, and statesman. Let me tell you a little bit about uh, Johann Goethe and a little bit what he says. Um, The beginning of faith is the beginning of fruitfulness, but the beginning of unbelief, however, glittering, is empty. Another way, another time he wrote this. Yet I hold all four evangelists as thoroughly genuine, for there is in them the reflection of greatness which emanated from the person of Jesus, such as only once has appeared on earth. If anyone asks whether it is in my nature to pay him devout reverence, I say, surely yes. I bow before him as a divine revelation of the highest principle of morality. Five individuals, these are the top five smartest people of all time. And again, many people okay, yeah, absolutely. Of those five people, Four of them are Christians, and of those five people, all of them are theists. Albert Einstein is not would not be considered a, a Christ follower, but he was a theist. Towards late, towards the end of his life, he was um, he was he became wrestling with the belief that there was some higher intelligence. Because the more he studied the universe, the more he realized that the universe was what it was. He began to believe that there was something more, although he never claimed that something more was. Jesus or, or what we would say a Judeo-Christian God. Now, that may startle you to know that four of the five smartest people of all time believed in Jesus. Because what you are told is, is smart people, as they get smarter more degrees, religion or faith becomes less important. Now, that may be true, and I would say, in North American culture, and I don't think it's by, by education. I actually think it's by preference, uh, but that's a whole different conversation. But... Um, when we take a look at really what, what, what looks like the smart people of all time, four out of the five of those smart people would say that Jesus was the Son of God and that were faith. James Clerk Maxwell was actually a uh, deacon in his church, right? And this is like number five on the list. Now, that may startle some of you, but I think it's important to kind of re- remind ourselves that the narrative that we are told of backwoods kind of po- podunk Christians is actually might be greatly exaggerated. In... Um, June 22nd, uh, 1633, something happened. And this is where the church and science went two separate directions. This is an important moment, right? Now, what happened was something called the Trial of Galileo. And uh, some of you know where exactly where I'm going with this. Galileo and, and Copernicus put forward this theory of a heliocentric theory as a model of the solar system that posits a central place for the sun with the planets orbiting it. So what Galileo and Copernicus, through science and ob- observation, said, wait a minute, the universe does not revolve around the earth. It actually revolves around the sun. Right? That's what they said. Um, it is mostly closely associated with Copernicus and Galileo, and the theory was widely adopted after Copernicus's death. Heliocentric theory replaced the older geocentric theory, which held that the sun and our, our other bodies orbit the earth. Now, this, is what, this was a quote from his trial, and this is important because this is really when we see the separation of the two. This is the court, this is the church, pronouncing a... a um, uh, um, their verdict on uh, Galileo. We pronounce, judge, and declare that you, the said Galileo, have rendered yourself vehemently suspected by this holy office of heresy, that is, of having believed in hell doctrine, which is false and contrary to the holy and divine scriptures, that the sun is the center of the world and that it does not move from east to west, and that the earth does move and it is not the center of the world. Now, just take a look at that statement for us a moment there, right? The church, the Catholic church at the time, the highest spiritual body in in the world at that time, is saying something very important to Galileo. They're saying to Galileo, Galileo, what you are saying goes against scripture, and it goes against doctrine, therefore you are wrong, despite all the facts you present towards us. Now, in this moment, something happens here. Right In this moment, and you see it from that point onwards, is that science kind of looks very skeptically at the church and saying, listen, okay, I know you, you, you got it wrong there and you keep getting it wrong since then. And that, since that day in 1633, there has been this very clear distinction of science and faith. Because what happened was, and I want to be clear about something, what the church said back then, it had no right to say. Because heliocentric, geocentric theory was not in the scriptures. It's nowhere in the scriptures. But for them, they believe that they are the center of the world. Therefore, this is important for them to think of humanity as being the center part of the universe. Despite what uh, science and what observable uh, science can teach them. And so in that moment in time, this separation took place. And we have been struggling with this separation since then. Now, before I kind of jump into a couple of some facts here, I need to talk a little bit about the multiverse. Now, the reason I need to talk to you about this is you're like, why is this important? This is important for a couple of reasons. The reason it's important is when I started asking questions about science and, and, and physics and all that, uh, and actually the funny thing is on, uh, on Friday night I had a chance to talk to the physicist there. Um, he is the, uh, I can't remember his name now, but he runs a perimeter institute, uh, Neil... Anyways, I can't remember his name. But we had, we had a great conversation in the multiverse. And as soon as I asked him about it, he chuckled a little bit. And, and the funny thing is, is, is one of the ways we kind of find out how we interact with the world is through media. Right? Those of you who have seen Doctor Strange, you know that there is a multiverse and that, you know, Benedict Cumberbatch can go through all, all of them, which, of course, we believe to be true anyways, right? But the thing with the multiverse is, is that this theory came up came out of this, this one thought. There is a belief that, and we, talk, we saw in the video there, we're going to look a little bit more about this, but our universe is way too perfect for life. So the multiverse comes along and says, well, there are other universes that are not perfect for life. There's nothing unique about our universe. It's just one of the multiple universes out there that are, I say this. Now, remember I said to you in this series that I wasn't going to use Christian sources, I was not going to do that. And if I do, I'm going to let you know I'm going to do that, right? So when I began to study this, this topic, and again, realizing as well, I'm way out of my depth on this one as well, too. I have to kind of go to websites to kind of put it in layman's terms. So I went to the Smithsonian, and I found this article from April 19th of 2016. And it says this. It is easy to write theories, says Carlo Rovelli of the Center of Theoretical Physics at Lumini, France. Here Rovelli is using the word colloquially to talk about hypothetical explanations of how the universe fundamentally works. It's hard to write theories that survive the proof of reality, continues. Few survive. By means of this filter, we've been able to develop modern science, technological society, to cure illness, to feed billions. And all this works thanks to the simple idea. Do not trust your fancies. Keep only ideas that can be tested. If we stop doing so, we go back to the style of the thinking of the Middle Ages. Their article goes on to say this. He and cosmologist George Ellis of the University of Cape Town and Joseph Silk of John Hopkins University in Baltimore worry that because no one can currently prove ideas like the multiverse right or wrong, scientists can simply continue along their intellectual paths without knowing whether their walks or anything are but random. Theoretical physics risks becoming a no-man's land between mathematics, physics, and philosophy that does not truly meet the requirements of any. Now, why is this important? It's important because the multiverse is something that was used to say, oh, by the way, our universe isn't unique. There's many universes out there. And in common usage, many people go, oh, okay, that makes sense. The problem with that is there's no proof. There's there's no proof of the multiverse. But it's put forward as a way of saying our universe is not unique. There's other universes out there. And so what is interesting about that is that there's some, and, and, and again, the article goes on to talk about garbage science, right? He says, like, there's, there's people say these things, and they catch on. The media picks up on them, or, or a movie picks up on it, and it becomes common usage in our culture, but there's no proof of it. And in the, in the article, it said something that's very interesting, because we go back to the Middle Ages, back to a time of, 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 of um of, of looking at things mytholo- mythologically, and we, we look at it that way. He says, the multiverse kind of fits under that way. Until we find proof of it, until we find ways of, of, of addressing it scientifically, it's just a theory, and it's not even a theory without any fact. It's more of a mathematical, uh, uh, mathematical model, which is fine, but without any proof, it's just it could be one of many different theories. But this is the theory that's talked about. I'm going to show you an article that comes from Nature magazine as well too about a person using the multiverse to talk about uh, against the fine-tuning of the universe. So when we talk about science, we have to realize that there are things in it that perhaps may, uh, may not be as clear as we say. Now let's take a look at the book of Genesis because this is where it all kind of comes from. I was, I was thinking about subtitling this sermon, um, Adventures of Making Everybody Angry. Uh, because really at, by the end of this, you're gonna, you may have a position that I'm pretty much going to stomp all over. Because what I realized was as you study this idea of science and faith, you have to realize that both sides have different answers to different kind of questions. And if you are not asking the right questions, you're going to have a lot of conflict. So the first thing we have to understand about the Genesis is Genesis starts off with this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, Right? That's how the that's how the, our Bible starts off, and that's how Genesis begins off. That that what we are saying is at the very beginning, God created everything. And I think most of us can kind of go, uh, okay, if you are maybe atheist or perhaps uh, somebody who who doesn't believe in any god, you like, okay, whoa, 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 right? But for most people, I think we say, okay, some god, some higher power, whether it be you know Muslim, Buddhist, whatever, whichever way you look at it, there is some higher being that starts everything, and you're like. Okay, fair enough, right? Problem with Genesis, though, is that we are asking the wrong questions. Greek and Latin understanding of it, but not really how the Hebrews wrote it. I actually found it kind of interesting. as when I began to study what authors write about Genesis, a couple things kind of uh, um, came out. Augustine wrote this: "What kind of days were these? Or, uh, what kind of day, uh, kind of days these were is extremely difficult, or perhaps impossible, to determine." A guy named uh, Jay Gresham Matchett, by the way, a conservative evangelical commentator, says this. It is certainly not necessary to think that the six days spoken of in the first chapter of the Bible are intended to be six days of 24 hours each. Another guy named Carl F. Henry, again, a conservative uh, biblical scholar, says this, faith in an inerrant Bible does not rest on the frequency or antiquity of the earth. The Bible does not require belief in a six literal 24-hour creation days on the basis of Genesis 1 and 2. It is gratuitous to insist that 24-hour days are involved or intended. Now, let me show you something here, okay? What I'm trying to say to you is that Genesis 1 starts off with, and it gives us an account of creation, right? And... There can be people here who say, well, I believe that God created the universe in six days. I'm okay with that. I just want you to know something. And those of you as well that believe that it's billions upon billions of years old, both sides need to understand something. The Bible doesn't address that issue. It's not really intended to. Right. Let me show you how. Uh, let me show you about something uh, about how we kind of break it down a little bit. The Old Testament scholar and Hebrew linguist Gleason Archer, a strong advocate for inerrancy, wrote on the basis of internal evidence, is this writer's conviction that "yom" in Genesis could not have been intended by the Hebrew author to mean a literal twenty-four hour day. Now, "yom" is a word day, right? It's a Hebrew word for day. But the thing is, though, is it means day, space of time, time period. There are about 20 different ways you can take the word yom in Hebrew, and you can, you can, you can extrapolate a meaning from that. Now, you could say, well, the Bible clearly says in 24 hours, but the problem is in the first two chapters here, the word yom is used in a couple of different ways. In Genesis 1-5, and God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. Here Moses, who we, we, we believe wrote the book of uh, Genesis, Moses used yom to indicate a 12-hour period. In Genesis 1.14, and God said, "Let there be lights in the firmament of the heavens to divide the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years." Here, Moses uses yom to indicate a twenty four hour day. In Genesis chapter two verse four, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, here Moses uses yom to indicate the entire creative week. Now, why is this important? Because what can happen is, is when you go to Genesis one and two and you start putting calendars, you start putting uh, uh, things like that in there. What you forget is Genesis chapter 1 and 2 is largely poetic. Moses is writing it not to give us a linear idea of how creation happened, but he's trying to give us an idea of what God intended to do. That he was creating a space for humanity, that we are different than every other creature on this planet, that he is creating something for us. The mechanism of creation was not important to Moses. Why? Because it's a human way of thinking. It's about value. It's about what, what, what does it mean? So one of the things we have to understand is that in Genesis, there are a couple of phrases that should kind of alert us to this. In Genesis chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work here. He had been doing so on the seventh day. He rested from all his work. If you believe God needs to rest, you don't really understand God. So what is the language trying to tell us here? It is poetic. It is, image, it is imagery for us to understand. But God does not need to rest. Right? In Genesis, uh, in verse 7, the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground. Now, last time I checked, you have minerals, but you are not dirt. Because if you go outside in the rain, you're not going to melt. Right? No one fears sending their kids up to a sandbox to make a clay figure. All of a sudden it comes spring to life. If that's what you think human beings are, then perhaps you should probably go back to biology 101. Right? What is the writer saying here? What is Moses saying here? That he is trying to convey an image that this creation of humanity is unique and special. Right? But he is using poetic language to show us that creation. And again, in verse 19, the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and the birds of the sky. Again, just to reiterate, I don't believe anybody believes here that birds and animals are spring up out of the ground. So what you have to say to yourself is This language that is being used here is poetic. And because it is poetic, we have to kind of step back a little bit and say, okay, this is not meant to give us a linear uh, understanding of evolutionary thought or creationist thought. Both of which uh, I think I have great things to say, but maybe asking the wrong questions of Genesis 1 and 2. Because if you think about it, the creation of everything is pretty important. It should probably have its own book of the Bible. In some sacred documents, it does. But for ours, it only occupies two chapters of the entire Bible. Why? Because chapter three, that's when it gets to the good stuff. And that's the fall of humanity. And that's when it kicks into this narrative story of Adam and Eve. Right? But it just gives us two chapters of creation. And the first chapter is more of a linear account. The second one is more of a narrative account. Right? So it doesn't, he doesn't repeat the, the imagery in both. Now, why is that important? Because you can be here, and you can, be, you can believe in evolution, and still be a Christ follower. Whoa, 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 whoa. Are you telling me I came from a monkey? Well, some of you are kind of hairy, but no, that's not what I'm saying to you, okay? What I am saying is this. The mechanism that God used for creation is unknown to us. And the Bible doesn't go either way to saying it. Now, remember I said to you this this sermon is going to be the adventures of making everybody angry, right? Because what do you want from me? You want a definitive statement of what is right, what is wrong, and what should I believe, what should I not believe. And I'm saying to you the scripture isn't clear. And because of that, we get so wrapped up in this that we forget about Jesus. We forget about the God's redemptive plan for humanity. Now, I will say this as well. I do not believe that human beings evolve from apes. I don't. And you can say, well, there's all this, re- I, I get your reasons, and there's all those reasons why not as well too. Because whatever the creation account tells us is humanity was different than everything else. We were breathed into us the breath of God which set us apart from everything else. Now, you can sit there and going, whoa, I don't know about that. If you say, okay, if you ask me the age of the universe, I would say uh, paleontologically, we have some reasons to believe it's this old, but I think cosmologically, we have better reasons to think it's older. And so I would say to you that I would think that the universe might be about 13 and a half, 14 or billion years old. But what's interesting about that is when we think about Earth and life on Earth, most people say that life on Earth came about three and a half to four billion years ago. But what's interesting is we have, we have proof. That life started on Earth 170 million years after uh, we, we, we go right back to the beginning of, of Earth's kind of creation. The problem with 170 million years is it does not give us any way, shape, or form enough time for evolutionary thought. Because if you not understand evolution properly, you will understand that it needs billions of years to start it. But here's the other problem, though. The problem with evolution and the problem with evolutionary thought is it doesn't answer all the questions. Now, let me show you something here. Because I know some of you are kind of angry. You want to kind of uh, jump out and, and, you know, and fight me. You can do so, but uh, understand something, okay? There is a lot of different reasons why I don't believe evolutionary thought is the full understanding of creation. Now, the reason I, th- I say that is when uh, Charles Darwin wrote Origin of the Species, he was writing an anthropological, paleontological book. Here's what I mean by that. Charles Darwin did not understand cellular structure, biology, DNA. All he could do is observe externally animals. So, for example, the finches and their beak size. He saw this finch size had their beak smaller. This one was bigger. Therefore, this is how we explain it. It was an outside-in understanding of of creation. And as a matter of fact, Charles Darwin wrote in his book that they they thought, and and again, this is the 17th, 18th century, that a cell was a kind of protoplasm that could become whatever he wanted. That was his understanding of cellular structure. Right, So this guy named Michael Behe wrote a book called uh, Darwin's Black Box about the cell. Right? Michael Behe is a biochemical engineer. Now, the reason I'm not referencing Michael Behe is because he's a Christian. So I, I'm, I'm taking that setting aside because I said to you, I'm not going to use Christian writers for this. But what's interesting is, is when you talk to someone who is a molecular biologist, biochemical engineer, what they understand is what Darwin never could understand is the cell is a very complex thing. So complex that there is almost an astounding amount of information necessary for this thing, which is the very basis of everything, to work. Now, let me show you some uh, some what some uh, people say about this. Um, Dr. Leon Ferris, who's a PhD, he says this, The principle of Darwinian evolution now is not just an explanatory theory, but also a a debunker of theism. As such, it has been elevated to a status of unquestionable truth to the extent that biologists who may have doubts on its fireproof status would not admit it so in public, in in case they become pari in their community. He goes on to say this, the second difficulty I have is related to the spontaneous appearance of information carrying replicating systems and ultimately of what we may call mentality. At the prebiotic stage of evolution, Darwinian competition cannot, by definition, assist the evolutionary process. Now here's a part here. Natural selection requires that primitive life is already there for the process to begin. Evolutionary thought cannot tell us how life started. And the whole teaching of primordial soup we're going to look at in a moment here is so mathematically impossible that it it becomes to the point where the people that are pushing against actual evolution are people who say, okay, whoa, 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 DNA, biochemical, uh, like these type of things. This is how you become who you become. And we also know, too, that this information, the vast amounts of information stored in this strain of DNA is, is, is how we understand development. And so because of that, okay, well, let me tell you a story. My wife and I, when we, uh, we had our, our children, it was always kind of a funny thing when we picked the kids up from school. Because when I picked them up from school, they looked at me and they looked at our kids and like, um, I don't okay, stepdad maybe? Or, uh, you know, trophy dad, which, you know, of course, right? Um, <laughs> then when my wife, right, Scottish redhead, picked the kids up from school, they looked at her like, okay. See, they, what they couldn't do is a racial math. And the racial masses, when we both showed up, they go, oh, <laughs> these kids come from these two people, right? And it's like, oh, okay, that makes sense. Now, why am I telling you that, right? Because our genetic codes are put together to produce these, uh, these children that we have. Um, and, and, and what's important about that is that we can say, oh, okay, this is how it works. What Darwin could never understand was is that they don't just spontaneously get to choose uh, their skin color, pigmentation, things like that. They, the, it's, it's in the DNA, and so when we talk about evolution, there are a great amount of reasons to, to, to say there isn't quite all the answers there that uh, uh, can be. Um, uh, in Nature magazine, a guy named uh, Philip Ball said this. 60 years ago, on the very definition of gene, is hotly debated. We do not know how the most of our DNA does, nor uh, how or what extent it governs, it governs traits. In other words, we do not fully understand how evolution works at a molecular level. You can go and read the rest of the quote there. But what he's saying, this is nature magazine, right? Again, not a Christian magazine. I I told you I wouldn't use those. But he's saying it's basically at a molecular level, we don't understand how evolution can work at that level. Because what we understand is information is passed on. And when it's passed on, it's passed on in this certain way. And if it's broken, it actually creates a detriment to health, not actually improvement, which is what needs to happen with evolutionary thought. And so, um, the molecular engineers are going like, wait a wait, minute, wait, we don't have everything together. Uh, Francis Crick, who won the Nobel Prize in Physiology and Medicine in 1962, he was one of the guys that mapped out uh, the DNA strand, said this, an honest man armed with all the knowledge available to us now could only say that in some sense the original life appears at the moment almost a miracle. So many are the conditions which would have had to been satisfied to get it going. This is the guy that won the Nobel Prize for DNA. And when he began to realize how much information was encoded in the DNA, he realized that this is almost, this is, this is impossible by random selection. Uh, Francis Collins, uh, who oversaw the Human Genome Project, which you might have saw on the paper years ago, he's a Christian. But he also believes in evolution as well too. But he will also say to you that evolution does not answer all these information about mapping up the human genome. There's too much information here. And this information that's not even necessary, we don't even understand what it does. And because of that, there's all these questions. Um, Sir Frederick Hoyle, which you saw there. Again, Sir Frederick Hoyle, not a Christian. Again, I told you I wouldn't use that. uh, Mathematician, biologist, uh, he says this. In fact, even if the ideal primordial soup existed, and if it were repeatedly jolted by electrical charges, as in the famous uh, Miller-Urey experiment, the time required for the formation of any one of the requisite 200,000 proteins would be roughly equivalent to 293.5 times the estimated age of the earth. So basically he's saying there's not enough time to create the necessary uh, uh, building blocks for life. It's just, it's impossible, right? And again, he's calculating it out and saying, oh, okay, is the universe fine-tuned for life? PBS had this great article, um, and I have it here, uh, and basically what it was is an individual saying, okay, this world seems too fine-tuned. Too. It talks about an individual, and this is what they say, um, that night in Hawaii, Sandra Fraser, she a bachelor of science, PhD, declared that there are only two possible explanations for fine-tuning. One is that there is a God, and God made it that way, she said. But for Faber and atheists, divine intervention is not the answer. So basically, she's looking at the universe and saying, it's too perfect. But because I don't believe in God, I discount that. So i got to find another reason. And guess what the reason she states is? I, 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 I copied it out here. It says this take my glasses off. The only other approach that makes any sense is to argue that there really is an infinite or very big ensemble of universes out there that we are in. This ensemble would be the multiverse. Remember I told you that the multiverse is the explanation to talk about fine-tuning? In a multiverse, the laws of physics and values of physical parameters like dark energy would be different in each universe. Each of the outcomes of some random pull on the cosmic slot machine. So basically saying, when you say there's an infinite amount of multiverses, we just lucked out. And I said to you beforehand, the multiverse is used as a reason why the fine-tuning of the universe is explained. We just got lucky. But I remember I said to you as well, too, that the multiverse was junk science. Okay. Um, we're not going to talk about this guy. Uh, I'm, I'm going I'm to move on from here because I'm running out of time. I want to introduce you to a guy named Dr., uh, uh, Dr. Faisal Rana. Dr. Faisal Rana, I came across him in his writing. Let me tell you, Dr. Faisal Rana. Dr. Faisal Rana grew up Muslim. His father was a nuclear physicist, literally, and his mother was a a math teacher. And Dr. Faisal grew up as a Muslim, went off to uh, university, got his Bachelor of Science, and became an atheist. He realized that Islam did not answer the uh, questions of life, uh, and so he said, this cannot be it. And so when he was pursuing his Bachelor of Science, he realized, you know what, I actually think uh, there is no God, and he became an atheist. Until he started going through his postdoctoral studies. And when he, became, when he got his PhD in chemistry and with his biochemistry, he realized something. Again, as I said to you, that when you get down to life at that level, it's too much. It's too much. There's too much information. There's too much design inherent in it at the very smallest level. And this is what Dr. Faisal says. This elegance, evidence, in virtually all aspects of the cell's chemistry carries profound philosophical and theological significance that prompts questions about the origin, purpose, and meaning of life. Though I once embraced evolutionary paradigm, it is inadequate explanations <clears throat> for the origin of life coupled with the sophistication and complexity of the cell's chemical systems. Convince me as a biochemistry graduate study that a creator must exist. It is supranomical and probable for the essential gene set to emerge simultaneously through natural means alone. If left up to evolutionary process, not enough resources or time exists throughout the universe's history to generate life in its simplest form. Dr. Faisal became a Christian because of his postdoctoral studies, because he realized something at the very molecular level, that life was profoundly complex. And it's so complex that the randomness that people talk about is impossible to create life as we know it. Now, why is this important? And I'm going to close here. This morning, what I really want to show you is something very, very interesting. Is there is this revolt within the scientific community? We don't hear about it because it doesn't fit the the, the narrative in our culture. But scientists are becoming more. Uh, they move from atheist to agnostic. And they move from agnostic to Christian. Now, isn't it interesting they don't become another religion? The reason science exists is because in the early stages of science, Christians said that God created the universe, and he created that universe with laws. And those laws could be understood by us as human beings. And this is why most scientists who come to that point of saying there is a designer, somehow, for some reason, seem to go toward becoming a Christian. Dr. Faisal could have became a Muslim again. Again, that's his background. But for some reason, Christianity explained the, the beginnings of the origins of the universe. I didn't even get into the Big Bang. I didn't get to the, the, the beginning of all things. I, I, I don't have time for all that. and I'm way over time right now. The point is this. If you are a Christian and you struggle with faith and science and reason, you're like, I don't know how these two uh, coexist. They do. But make sure you ask the right questions. Don't go to Genesis 1 and 2 and say, this is what I believe it should say. Instead, say, God created everything, we don't know the mechanisms of that creation, and he created humanity in a special place of that creation, that's how we understand the world, and everything else from that, so if you are a Christian and you saying, you know, I believe in evolution, by all means, please do, I believe that you didn't believe in a macro evolution, not a micro evolution, but that's a whole other conversation, we are going to celebrate communion now, please understand, we're we're running a little behind, I apologize for that, a lot of information, The kids are coming in to celebrate with us. I'm going to get the ushers to get ready uh, for that. Uh, Worship team, come on up. Uh, They're going to celebrate communion. They're going to help us with that. Here's what I want you to do in this moment of transition. I just want you to ask a question. And the question is a simple one, really. What's your faith based upon? What's your faith based upon? Is it based upon your understanding of the universe? Because if that's what it's based upon, that's a very small reason for it to be based upon. Or is it based upon something more than that? And that is, there is a creator, there is a God that made everything for us and has a plan and a purpose for us. That's really what this sermon is about. That's what the series is about, is it helps us give us reasons for that. Let me just pray, and the ushers are going to start to the emblems. Lord, I pray right now for each person here. I pray for their brains, that gray matter between their ears. Lord, that we would know that you have given us a reason for a reason. That we could explore this universe, explore creation, and everything that we learn draws our eyes upwards and and just worship of you. I thank you, God, that you have not left us abandoned on our own, but instead you've given us ways of seeing your hand upon all creation. I pray, Holy Spirit. That if there's anybody here this morning that perhaps has doubts and is skeptical, that's fine. But Lord, that they would just pursue truth, all truth. Because God, all truth is your truth. And the more we pursue truth, the more we pursue you, whether we like it or not. And that we would all fall at your knees and worship you for who you are. In Jesus' name, amen.